You're listening to the podcast from Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler, episode 14, Hellenistic Judaism. Over the last several episodes, I have focused on the Jews of the province of Judea, the intense political and military activities during the consolidation, expansion, and collapse of the Hasmonean line from 162 to 30 BCE would not have impacted or made much of a mark on the lives of most Jews, I suggested. The rhythms of their daily life and life cycle depended little on the rulers. There is little evidence to suggest that most Jews would have cared very much, even about whether the ruler was a Jew or not. They would have been much more concerned with whether the central public cult, the temple, continued to operate properly. In previous episodes, I have mentioned the importance of the temple in Jerusalem, and it is worth taking a few moments here to discuss what we know and don't know about its role during the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE. Almost all organized political groups through the Mediterranean basin and in West Asia had a public cult, a divinity or set of divinities acknowledged as supreme and often having a centralized and important cult site within some geographical region. I think that it is in many respects useful to see the Jerusalem temple in the same way. It was the geographical location of the public cult of the God of Israel. For Jews as a community to stay right in the eyes of God required that they punctiliously fulfill their obligations to God at the Jerusalem temple. There is a gap though between the public cult and private or maybe better popular or domestic religious practices. Although the Hebrew Bible ordains three pilgrimages each year to Jerusalem, it is hard to imagine that many Jews outside of the city's immediate environs would actually do this. Given the distances, the costs, the dangers, and the disruptions, it would not be surprising if most Jews made the pilgrimage far less frequently. This fact helps to highlight a question that in any case presents itself. If the public worship of the God of Israel is centralized in this single institution, where, when, and how did most ordinary Jews worship and connect with God? Surely they called upon God and his minions to protect them, to help them prosper, to heal them, and to harm their enemies. All the regular things that most people in most times invoke the divine for. They presumably observed Sabbaths and holidays, as did their families and communities, all without a temple. So how important exactly was the temple for these Judean Jews? On the one hand, very important, although the nature of this importance would have been a little different for different groups of these Jews. For those living in and around Jerusalem, the temple undoubtedly loomed large. It was the central cult site of Jerusalem, and many, if not most people, would in some way have been economically dependent on the temple and its activities, even though, and this is important to remember, the temple at this time was not nearly as grand and impressive as it would become after Herod's rebuilding a century-long stimulus package that ends only shortly before the temple's destruction. For other Jews further away, of course, the temple was critically important as a place to assure God's continuing protection of the group although it would have been less important from the perspective of individual needs. Day to day, the temple would not have loomed very large for these Jews. 
What about the Jews who lived even further away from the temple, though? Even by the mid-2nd century BCE, the Jewish diaspora, as it is sometimes called, was extensive. The Jewish community established in Babylonia during the 6th century BCE was undoubtedly strong. We have extensive evidence of Jewish settlement in Asia Minor, that is Turkey, the Greek and Mediterranean islands, Egypt, and other parts of North Africa from the 2nd century BCE on. How did they relate to the Temple at Jerusalem? How did they, in fact, relate to the God of Israel? What, in other words, was their Judaism like? Before actually trying to answer this question, let me put the question itself into a larger historiographical context. That is to say, the question has been discussed by scholars for well over a century. In these scholarly discussions, the question or issue of Judaism outside of Judea has almost always boiled down to the question of assimilation or acculturation. To what extent did Jews accept and adapt to Hellenistic ideas and customs? How did these Jews, particularly as minorities in a Greek city, relate to the larger non-Jewish population? Indeed, the argument has often gone, many Jews went Greek, as it were. They practiced something that we call Hellenistic Judaism, with ideas and practices that were related to those of their brethren in Judea, but also much more flavored by the Hellenistic world in which they lived. Now, on the one hand, this construction, this idea that Hellenistic Judaism is a meaningful term and category, does not rest on nothing. There is an extensive literature written by Jews during this period in Greek. It comes, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, in genres and with ideas that are perfectly comprehensible in a Hellenistic context. Jews wrote inscriptions in Greek using Greek forms and formulae. Taken as a whole, and put up against, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls, or our knowledge of contemporary practice, it looks like we are dealing with a different and coherent beast. But this conclusion, I think, would be largely mistaken. The positing of a distinctive category, Hellenistic Judaism, is, I believe, deeply flawed, both methodologically and theoretically. Let me start with method. The surviving Jewish-Greek texts are highly eclectic and biased. Remember how such texts survived, often as fragments embedded in other classical or early Christian texts, whose authors extracted the parts that they liked from these earlier compositions. Some of these compositions survive intact, but again, only because early Christians, and they are preserved almost exclusively by Christians and then passed down via monastic scribes, found them amenable. The sample is not representative. Moreover, the construct Hellenistic Judaism again falls back on the assumption that there was some kind of problem with Hellenism, and that the Jews of Judea largely rejected Hellenistic culture and institutions. But this, as we saw, is not true. Even given the very slipperiness of Hellenism as a meaningful concept, it is clear that the Jews of Judea had little problem with it. Hellenism per se was simply not an issue. Jews freely drew on Hellenistic ideas and institutions. To compare the eclectic, elite Jewish-Greek texts from outside of Palestine to the elite Jewish-Hebrew texts of the separatists of Qumran, 
seems to me at minimum to be a bit silly. So too, it is not terribly useful to compare these Greek texts to the practices of the public cult in Jerusalem. There is also a theoretical problem, as I have argued at length in my book, Creating Judaism, History, Tradition, Practice. The problem with the notion of Hellenistic Judaism is that it assumes that there is a non-modified Judaism, just Judaism, a pure one, presumably to be identified with Judea or perhaps just Jerusalem and the temple. That way of thinking, however, makes an intrinsic value judgment. There is a single true and historically continuous kind of Judaism against which others can be compared. Yet in the real world, this does not seem to me to be how things work. Instead, what we find are groups of self-identified Jews wrestling with and interpreting the largely shared set of texts and rituals. There is no single pure Judaism. Jews have always throughout history created their Judaism from an often shared set of resources, sometimes with radically different results. These eclectic Greek texts do share a few characteristics, but to simply label it Hellenistic Judaism misses the mark. As an aside, it is not hard to see how the notion of Hellenistic Judaism arose and why it persisted. The term began to be used in 19th century German scholarship, primarily in studies of Christian origins. Not very surprisingly, at the time, the issues of assimilation and acculturation of Jews in German society were hot. And it is possible to see in these discussions of the Jews of antiquity not a little retrojection. There was an assumption that the situation of these Jews to a large degree mirrored that of contemporary German Jews. For these scholars, it was precisely this characteristic of assimilation, undoubtedly reinforced by their knowledge of elite assimilated German Jews, that made these Jews likely candidates for conversion to Christianity. Curiously, although the conditions of 20th century America differed significantly from 19th century Germany, the issue of assimilation remained hot, but for different reasons. Now Hellenistic Judaism could be portrayed as a model, sometimes good and sometimes bad, for the modern American Jewish experience. One more aside that I think is relevant to thinking about Jews in the Mediterranean world. Rather than thinking in systems and generalities about the Jews, we might do better to take a sociological approach. Certainly, the Judean worshippers of the God of Israel who first landed in a Greek city, new immigrants, will behave in a different way than their children and grandchildren. There's nothing particularly wrong in principle with language such as assimilation and acculturation if we use the terms carefully and with sensitivity to generational shifts. A Greek city that received a constant stream of new immigrants from Jerusalem and I'm not sure I know of any city just like that, is going to contain a different kind of Jewish community than one that received a large influx of immigrants three generations earlier. The immigration patterns of Jews throughout antiquity are of course obscure, but I think that the issue can receive more attention than it has to date, and there might be much that is left to learn. Enough historiography. What do we really know about these Jews? 
Jews occupied a bit of an anomalous position within the Mediterranean Greek cities. On the one hand, they appear to have been well integrated. We have no evidence from this period that Jews had to live in certain quarters of a town or city, although it is reasonable to assume that Judeans, as any other ethnic group, would tend to live in concentrated clusters, as we can see a little later on in both Alexandria and Rome. The surviving Jewish contracts, almost all from Egypt, show that Jews maintain close social and economic ties with non-Jews. There is little evidence that Jews would have been recognizable by their looks or dress. Unlike the medieval and Renaissance portraiture that had a stereotypical look for a Jew, there was no visual trope in antiquity that would identify one as a Jew. In most ways, Jews were like anyone else. Most ways, but not quite all. Remember that we are not now in a world of Jews and Greeks. Rather, most of these Greek cities hold a much more complex dynamic of multi-ethnic relations. In Egypt, for example, most of the Greek cities contain relatively few actual Greek citizens, with most of the residents classified as Egyptians, who have lesser legal rights. Rome was also a hodgepodge of different ethnic groups, each organized to various degrees, with their own grievances and patterns of social relationships. Jews were just one of many groups competing for rights and privileges. Unlike these other groups, though, Jews continued to maintain several customs, which they saw as commandments of their God, that limited the degree of their social interaction. The two most important sets of customs, by far, and as well observed by their non-Jewish neighbors, dealt with food and the Sabbath and holidays. Aside from circumcision, there was almost no awareness in any extant non-Jewish source of any other difference between Jews and their neighbors. The ramifications of the food taboos in particular can hardly be overstated. Jews in antiquity almost certainly derived their understanding of these laws directly from the Bible, which, as you might remember, had been translated into the Greek version, the Septuagint, around 200 BCE, at least the first five books, the Torah. On the matter of permitted and forbidden species of animals, the Bible is relatively clear. Among regular land mammals, only those animals that have split hooves and chew their cud were permitted to be consumed, or as we might say, kosher. Fish must possess both fins and scales. Certain kinds of birds were permitted and others forbidden. The Bible contains no general rule to classify them. From a very early time, Jews apparently tended to take these rules seriously. One of the primary ways in which archaeologists today identify an Israelite or Jewish settlement in Judea is the absence of pig bones. The Bible is less clear about several other matters. A story about Jacob wrestling with the angel is used to explain the popular custom of avoiding the sciatic nerve of an animal. God forbids the consumption of an animal's blood, but gives little guidance as to what that means. An obscure rule forbidding the consumption of a kid in its mother's milk appears three times. The Bible contains contradictions on whether all meat to be consumed is first to be sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem, a stricture that would massively limit meat consumption 
outside of the city's immediate neighborhood, or whether animals might be slaughtered for consumption in other places as well. It is worth noting the differences between what the Bible actually says and today's common understanding of the laws of kashrut. There is no mention in the Bible of salting meat to drain the blood, of not consuming meat with dairy products in general, or of avoiding non-Jewish wine. If there would have been restrictions on which cooking utensils could be used, that is, whether a pot or plate was kosher or could be koshered, it would have to derive from the purity regulations rather than the food taboos. These interpretations and extensions of the biblical prohibitions already began to take place in the Second Temple period, but would much expand later in the hands of the rabbis. We see this expansion even in the biblical book of Daniel, in a part that probably dates to the second century BCE. In the first chapter, Daniel and his companions are selected to study in the royal court, and as perks, they receive portions of the king's food. But they wouldn't eat it. As verse 8 reads, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank, so he sought permission of the chief officer not to defile himself. Daniel and his companions thus moved to a diet of legumes, much to the benefit of their health. The language of purity is interesting here. Foods are to be avoided because they cause some kind of impurity. Similarly, in the apocryphal book of Judith, Judith refuses a general's food, consuming instead the food and wine that she brought along for herself. Observance of these food taboos complicated the Jewish position in these Greek cities. It was not just that Jews would be limited to the extent to which they could enjoy the neighborhood block party or go drinking with business associates. These would be irritating, but minor annoyances. The problem ran deeper. Sacrifices, which really involved not just the roasting, but also the communal consumption of the meat, was a regular part of the civic life of these cities. Every other ethnic group known to us could participate in this aspect of civil life. Sacrificing to the gods of the city was not a rejection of their own ancestral gods. For Jews, of course, it was different. Given the Bible's clear, harsh, and repeated prohibitions against sacrifice to other gods, there was simply no way to get around this. And the problem was, there was no way to get around sacrifice when it came to military service. The army cohorts regularly sacrificed. The army was also a route to civic integration. As I mentioned in a previous podcast episode, the gymnasium, whose primary purpose was to create citizen soldiers, was a critical institution of the Greek city. The role of the citizen army changed under Roman rule, but there was still a need for cities to raise armies. Through a series of decrees by Julius Caesar, related by Josephus, and which allude to earlier practices, Jews were to be exempted from this military service. As one governor writes to Ephesus, Jews, quote, cannot undertake military service because they may not bear arms or march on the days of the Sabbath, nor can they obtain the native foods to which they are accustomed. I, therefore, like the governors before me, grant them exemption from military service 
and allow them to follow their native customs and come together for sacred and holy rites in accordance with their law and to make offerings for their sacrifices. The Jewish exemption from military service had two conflicting dimensions to it. On the one hand, it marginalized Jews and stood as an impediment to true social integration. Then, like now, the army served as something of a melting pot. On the other hand, though, military service was expensive and dangerous, and some of the other ethnic groups competing for crumbs from the Greek and Roman elite would have seen this exemption as unfair. Signaling the Jews out could thus exacerbate local tensions. This decree and the many others like it reported by Josephus singles out for particular notice Jewish food and Sabbath and holiday observance. It also mentions, though, sacrifices. You heard that correctly. The Jews of Ephesus are permitted to continue to make sacrifices. This might, of course, mean nothing more then despite their unwillingness to participate in their local civic sacrifices, they are allowed to send offerings to Jerusalem. It might, though, point toward a much more complex and surprising attitude of Jews toward sacrifice. The Jerusalem temple, you might be surprised to learn, was not the only Jewish temple in operation throughout antiquity. The Samaritans had a temple on Mount Gerizim, but that, as I mentioned, was destroyed by the Hasmoneans. There was another temple, though, operational in Leontopolis in Egypt. According to Josephus, this temple was established by one of the family of Onias, presumably one who escaped from the intrigue that led up to the Maccabean Revolt. This temple, built in the plain of the one in Jerusalem and operational until its destruction by the Romans around 73 CE, was ministered by a priestly family that arguably had a far stronger claim to the high priesthood than did the Hasmoneans. Like the Jerusalem temple, its primary function, presumably, was to offer sacrifices for and on behalf of the people Israel. We have not yet definitively located the site of this temple or its archaeological remains. But what is perhaps most striking to me about it is the relative lack of polemics against it in extant contemporary Jewish literature. That is, there is little evidence that contemporary Jews, even in Jerusalem, questioned its legitimacy. Now, maybe this is simply an accident of source preservation, or maybe it played such an insignificant role that the polemics would not have been worth the time or publicity. But maybe, just maybe, it was also because nobody questioned its legitimacy. Maybe, Drawing on the traditions of the Hebrew Bible that permit the slaughter of meat outside of the Jerusalem temple, Jews in places like Leontopolis and Ephesus not only slaughtered, but quite predictably would have understood and structured their slaughter as a sacrifice. I'm not suggesting that these local places of sacrifice would have exactly replicated the Jerusalem temple or replaced it, which would have continued to serve as an important symbolic and ideological center. But smaller local temples could well have been part of the common fabric of Jewish life outside of Judea. Today we often use the word temple synonymously with synagogue, but such was not the case in antiquity. Places more aptly called prayer houses for Jews emerge in Egypt in the second century BCE. We do not know very much about them or what went on inside them, 
but presumably Jews did pray in them. Synagogue is a Greek word denoting a gathering, and dedicated synagogue buildings began popping up after this throughout the Mediterranean basin. Curiously, the institution is not attested in Judea itself until the first century CE. In any case, if Jews prayed in these synagogues, it was most likely not done in a regular way with a regular liturgy like today. Maybe they would meet regularly for Sabbaths and holidays, read portions of the Torah, recite a fluid and changing liturgy. They may well have used Greek. They appear to have been modest buildings. Is what I've described in this episode Hellenistic Judaism? I've intentionally told a story that largely avoids the scattered extant Jewish texts written in Greek in different Greek genres. I have made this choice because these texts, to the extent that they are at all representative of what was actually written at the time, must have been largely marginal. The histories that seek to retell the biblical history in a way that sounds better to a Greek historical ear, the philosophical texts that wrestle with the philosophical and theological problems that the biblical texts would have posed to somebody familiar with Greek philosophy, these are fascinating texts, but they seem to be produced by and for a very tiny elite crust of these Jews. They reflect concerns and tensions that they would have felt more than others, and more importantly, they reflect a need to articulate and make sense of these concerns. Even if they articulate these tensions in a more sophisticated manner, though, the fundamental practices and beliefs are largely consistent with the story I've attempted to trace here. In the book Three Maccabees, for example, which tells a story that is a kind of cross between Second Maccabees and the book of Esther, the king Ptolemy directs his rage at the Jews of Egypt. The Egyptians join in their hostility to these Jews, primarily because they kept themselves apart in matter of food and worship, familiar themes. In this story, the Jews of course triumph, slaughter their enemies, go home in peace, and ordain a new holiday. This text and those of others, such as Aristobulus, the Jewish philosopher who was deeply concerned about biblical anthropomorphism, Ezekiel the tragedian, who wrote a not very good Greek tragedy starring Moses, or Aristeas, the author of a letter that frames Jewish belief and practice as the epitome of reason, doth not a Hellenistic Judaism make. While these texts do look somewhat different from what we see in Judea, they are not a coherent system, but a set of self-reflective articulations that attempt to make sense of traditional practices and texts. There is nothing particularly novel or counterintuitive about such a process. It is pretty much what we should expect to happen. We have moved over these last few episodes from the kings and rulers in Jerusalem to more common folk. It is now time to move back again, though. There is no more interesting and controversial king to sit in Judea than Herod the Great. Peacekeeper, sponsor of one of the largest public works projects in history, masterful politician, megalomaniac, and murderer, it is hard to capture his personality and reign with simple adjectives like good or bad. And so, in the next episode, we will turn to the fascinating and horrifying, the one and only, Herod the Great.
You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.